0: Welcome back to the special edition and mini-series of Parsha Panorama. This series, which we've titled The Four Parshas Explained, and for this installment, we are going to be focusing on Parsha's Zachor. This week's Shabbos is going to be Parsha's Zachor. We're going to read that small passage at the end of Parsha's Kisetzay, which reflects on the war that Amalek instigated against us when we were on our way out of Mitzrayim in Parsha's Beshalach, when we were in the Midbar, and in a certain respect, we might say that Parsha Zachor is the easiest one to understand. We don't have to do that much research into the history to understand the individual significance of this Parsha at this particular point in the year. Right? And that is because we know that Haman is a descendant of Amalek. Right? He's an Agagi. He comes from Agag, who comes from Amalek. And um, we understand that the targeting of the Bnei Israel by Haman in the Purim story in Megillah Esther was not just one isolated story about one man who was upset at a Jew and then you know all of a sudden um, decided that he wanted to kill the entire nation. So that wasn't just one isolated story. But we know that in the spiritual sense, and perhaps in some in some uh, metaphysical way, and maybe in some emotional way as well, there's there are a lot of thematic connections, but there's a lot of internal connections. That the battle of Haman against the Bnei Israel was really a hemshech, a continuation, something that is derived from the eternal battle between us and the nation of Amalek, and so we understand why we are reading Parsha Zachor in preparation of Purim. Right? It's it's, it's not as as um, I guess as um, technical and as um, I guess. History-oriented, as Parsha Shkalem, for example, which we did last week, we had to do a little bit of more research to understand um, the the practical significance of Shkalem, and that was because we, you know we don't really have the carbonos anymore. But we you know we we readily relate to the war with Amalek. We know about different kinds of evil that exist today, such as anti-Semitism, which. Is also just an outgrowth of this hatred, um, this, this, this um, relationship that we have with Amalek, and something that we spoke about a little bit in the previous Real Talk Torah, which was on the Torah perspective of hate. You could think of this in a certain sense as an addendum to that sheer, but we're going to focus really more on another aspect of Amalek and trying to a little bit qualify some of the things that we spoke about in that Real Talk Torah. And here's why. Because while on the one hand, Parsha Zachor should be the easiest to talk about, it should be the easiest to understand, this is only true in a certain sense. And in another sense, I think it might actually be the most difficult. And that's for two reasons. One, because as we've said in previous Parsha panoramas, we are not just looking at the individual Parsha for the individual week that it appears. We are looking at the entire series. That somehow, even though Parsha Zachor seems to be the most climactic part of the four parshios, it's only number two. So it's not the end of the era. It's not the end of the season or series. So we have what to think about because we're apparently still working towards something else, right? The the be all end all of the four parshios is not Purim. It's apparently Pesach. So somehow there's some link this chapter, this passage of Parsha Zachor is somehow supposed to be a step towards the, towards the rest of the four parshios, which is something that we have to think about. But that's one reason why Parsha Zachor is not as simple as we might think it is. And the other problem is that, in a certain sense, we think we know what a malik is, Even if there's no biological Amalek, we've spoken about how there's still an ideological Amalek that exists, right? Um, um, One of the the great Torahs to come out of the Salavajic dynasty is the idea that there's another manifestation of Amalek, even if it's not the biological Amalek. But there are a lot of things that we take so much for granted about Amalek that we never really question and try to understand it in a more practical and meaningful way. So there, there there are two aspects I want to focus on. There there are there are a lot of things that we have to discuss tonight. We're gonna to hopefully um do a little bit of reviewing of some of the interesting ideas about a that appear in the Yotseros and the Krovos. Um the the, the that are added into the Shemona Esrei on Parsha Zachor which um you find in some communities that they say it. It's in the back of the sitter. Alright, if you wanna find it. In the Art Scroll interlinear Sitter. so the yotzros for Zakhor are very long. They're only in Shachar's, but they are very, very long. They start on page eight seventy nine. So we're going to talk about some of that, but I want to first, um, I want to first, you know, really demonstrate to you why Parsha Zakhor is really much more complicated than we make it out to be. All right? You'll say, well, like, what's so? What's what? You know, what's so complicated about, you know, a Malik being, you know, the root of all evil and we want to stomp him out. And, you know, he attacked us and now we're going to attack him. Like, is, is there anything more to it? So one question I want to address, which I think is, um, for some people it's a famous question and for some people you may have never heard the question and once you hear it you're like, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that question? But, you know, we have this concept of Zachor al-Tishkach. You got to remember and never forget. And, in the, in this vein, you know the 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 Sifrei understands that, or it might be a, a, a Sifra in Parshas uh, Bechukosai. In different places, you might find it in Chazal that Zachor means to remember verbally, right? To make mention, to to remind us, um, to remind ourselves verbally. Um, Al Tishkach is in the heart. Don't forget it from your heart. And um, so we learn that that Parsha Zachor has to be read and. The Rambam explains that we want to awaken our hatred and our friction, our animus towards Amalek so that we never, so that we never uh, not only never forget what he did, but so that we should put up the fight, that we should understand the evil that Amalek is and and combat it. The Ramban in Parsha's Kisetse I believe, says that the whole Indian of Parsha's Zachor is to remind us of the mitzvah to wipe out Amalek. So this is something that has to be in our mind. This is in preparation of a future event, not just remembering something that happened a long time ago. But what does it mean when we say that you should remember and never forget what happened? And then on the other hand, we say Timcha is Malik. We say erase the memory of a malik. Right? Like the, isn't that like a, a contradiction? We're going to somehow wipe him out. We're going to erase the memory by remembering. So what exactly does that mean? So this might really actually just be a technical question, but it's an important question they have to ask. So, and we don't want to get um, you know messed over by the semantics of the matter. But very simply, when we say erasing their memory, that actually does not mean forgetting them, right? You could just theoretically forget everything that a did, and as if we you know, as long as we stop talking about a then we'll completely forget and we'll effectively erase the memory of a wouldn't we? The answer is no, because. If you, do, if you ignore a pervading problem, and this is the point, if you ignore a pervading problem, this means a problem that's still existent, a problem that's still extant, a problem that's still taking effect right now, then it doesn't go away. And a malik is not just something of the past. That's the point. So what do you do about something like that? Erasing the memory of a malik does not mean forgetting them, but it means eradicating any vestiges, any traces of their ideology that still exists. This is, in fact, the Kiddush of Rav Salvechik. And that only happens, right? The eradication of those traces only happens by constant remembering, right? If you forget that the Holocaust happened, then if you forget history, then it's going to be doomed to repeat itself. We remember, we have to... And that's why the zakhor, zakhira, is bepeh, say chazal. You have to do it verbally. Why? Because you have to call something out, you have to call it what it is. to If you want to attack a disease, you've got to diagnose it. You have to categorize. you have to invoke and call it by its name. This is something that we've heard about the likes of, of radical Islamic terror, right? Um, you know, and, and, you know, this is not necessarily to point at every single individual of a, of a particular religion. but if we don't call the evil by its name, right if we just say, you know, in all its forms, so what we neglect to do is to diagnose, to target, and to actually address the issue. So while we're doing that, now that we understand what the point of the Zechira is, that malik is a pervading problem, the question is, what do we do about that? Right? Let's diagnose it. Who is Amalek? Or what is Amalek? We've Become accustomed to thinking of a as the root of pure evil. This is something that we said earlier. Right? What what exactly does that mean? Like you got to be real a real sociopath, pure pure evil. Does does pure evil exist? You know, we we, we naturally think of Hitler Yimachshem Zikro, and everybody in politics that we don't like always ends up being compared to Hitler. Right? And you know a lot of a lot of the people even in politics that we don't like, even the real bad ones. You know they, 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 you know, they pale in comparison because we can't even think of something so absolutely evil. And is, is that what Amalek is? Is that something that only comes up every, you know, uh, 50, 100 years, whatever it is? It doesn't seem that way. It seems that Amalek has to be something, again, more, more prevalent, something that's more in our faces. And it's, it's, right, it's right in front of us, something that we have to do about it. Now, to the effect that a molek represents pure evil. So, in the Yotzros, we do find a lot of references to such an idea. Um, he's, um, referred to in the Yotzros as Gachon, which literally means the belly. Um, um and it says that, uh, that the Gachon, um, that, Am- that Haman descended from a molek, and there's this connection to Gachon, which is really referring to the part of the snake. Here the lashon is gachon gach ben achasim, a snake descended from among venomous serpents. And the art scroll here says the snake is hamon, the gachon, the belly of the snake is, is Haman, and the achasim, the venomous serpents. That's Amalek. So that's how that, that that's easily the the embodiment of evil if we know it. That's you know that that goes back to Gan Eden. And in fact, when the Gemara, I believe it's Gemara in Chulin, addresses the question of of minatora minatara minayin. Right, so the connection um, is not where you might have thought. It's not in Haman, the Mun. Though um, I, I do believe Rabbi David Foreman has a shot on that, and I also actually do. I have something written up on that. But they say hamin Ha'etz, right? Hey, Mem, Nun. The same emlashon of Haman is hamin Ha'etz, that from the Eitz Hadas. Did you, in fact, eat from the tree, Adam? Which was obviously the ploy of the snake. So the question is, how helpful are we when we classify Haman and Amalek as the absolute ultimate root of evil? Is this something that we think that we struggle with? Like, most of us are not sociopaths. Most of us don't wake up every day saying, hey, how can I upset God and his people today? So maybe we're winning the battle very easily, and maybe we're paying too much attention to this Amalek. Or maybe that's what the serpent wants us to think. Maybe that's what Amalek wants us to think. Maybe the battle is much more nuanced. Or right, maybe it's, maybe there's something maybe there is a root to the root of evil. Right? Because again, we don't wake up saying, "Let's do evil things." But we don't have the redemption yet, and it's probably because we're, we're lacking in this area. Maybe even if we don't manifest ultimate, pure, um, antisocial, sociopathic evil, even if we don't manifest that, maybe we have traits or maybe we have leanings, or maybe we have tendencies that are derived from the same root that all the same evils come from, that all pure evil comes from. Everything starts from somewhere. That means there's a part of us that has the Samalik. There's a part of us that has the serpent. And it might not be, you know, manifest in the form of genocide, but it might be manifest in the same ingredients that could also lead to genocide. That makes us all Hitler, so now we can make all the comparisons we want. We're all Hitler. No, but seriously, what well, we have to try to understand which part of us is the part that could chas if you know, if left, if left to its own designs, if left, if if left not in check, then it, then it could, you know, sprout and blossom into something so evil. What what's that part of us? So now going into some of the the um, more more of the krovos and the yotzros, while we think about this question, the the Piyotin, they talk about um, Amalek's goal of avenging Esav against Yaakov, right? The bechorah which was once petty, right? The the, the Chumash says that Esav spurned the birthright, and the 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 yotzros say that he traded it away. The lashon that they have here is a pretty strong lashon. Um, it says Habozeh bechorah who spurned the bechorah bechos hatarela. Um and he traded it for a cup of bitterness. Right, um me- meaning, you know, I mean obviously we know he traded it for lentil soup, but the cup of bitterness, the Kosha Rela, is an expression that comes up in, in Tanakh. Here it's being quoted from a Pasuk in Nishayahu. Um but it's it, this is a reference to God's doom. That, you know, anything good that you trade away, so then you you're you're really exchanging it for punishment. Um, Hashem is gonna do evil to you. The Putin talk about how a tried to emasculate us and molest us, describing, you know, acts of Mishkav Zachar. And the question is, you know, how, how how did he become that? Like, well, where does that come from? Like this, the, like you know, the grossest, most disgusting evil. So one one pasuk that I think it's not really a pasuk, but it's a line in the yozros that I think is noteworthy it says Ya'an Asher Lo Zachar, V'Nechshav <laughs> So what does this line mean? Ya'an because Asher lo zachar he did not remember kanechar and he considered himself like a stranger. He acted like a stranger. may he not be recalled kadosh in, in the in the memory of the Holy One in Hashem's holy memory. So it says that he didn't recognize something. So art scroll throws in there. What did he? What did he not recognize? Is he did not remember his uh, kinship to Israel. Meaning. If a malek represents vengeance that Esav wants over Yaakov, we know that in Parshas Vayishlach, we spoke about this in partial panorama. Yaakov and Esav, left off on pretty positive terms. They were they were pretty, you know, okay with one another, and yet there's still the part, even after walking away from each other, even after seemingly forgiving one another, there's the part that didn't want to let go. Maybe vengeance is actually part of it. Maybe holding the grudge is part of what a malek is. And in fact we'll see that this is definitely a big part of it The one that does not, does not want to remember the kinship that he once had The good relationship that he once had To look at only the bad This seems to be part of what a malik is But where, where, does, the, where does the negative of you know this, this evil that, that, that stems from Asaph Where does it come from? So I think you know, even though the Midrashim talk about how Esav was an adulterer, an idolater, a murderer, so all we know in the Chumash is what the pasuk says: "By as Esav as a Esav spurned the birthright." So what exactly does that mean? And I think this spurning of the birthright is the most significant part to understanding Esav because this is in fact the same thing that we find with Haman himself, Haman Harasha. He also spurned something. We find that Lashon of Vayavez, or Vayivez, whatever the exact expression is, in the Megillah, in the third parak, I believe. It says that Haman spurned, or he spurned the idea of just targeting a Mordechai who wouldn't bow to him. He said, you know, better that I make a bigger deal of this and I kill out the entire Jewish nation. So that means the Biza, the Bizui, the bizayon of, um, is something that connects these two stories, and this is how we have to understand a Malik. What exactly is this Mida, This um, this, this this behavior of vaivas va- 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 So I think in a certain respect you could say the vaivas just means that, you know, by by trading something away, by 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 disgracing something, um, so but by trading it away, he ultimately disgraced it. He spurned it in his actions. I've heard another way of reading that Pusik. that Vayivaz Esav Esa was actually not a summary of what he had done earlier. You could understand it that way. Maybe I'll peep shot. It could be understood that way. But also I'll peep shot. You could understand it in the reverse. Not that this is a summary of what happened before, but this was something that took place after Esav sold the birthright. Meaning, the story with Yaakov, you know, ASA comes in from the field. He says He's hungry. And he asks Yaakov for the lentils. Yaakov says, sell me your birthright today. Swear to me that I, they are going to give it to me. So Esav makes an argument. I'm going you know, to die anyway. Some say that this is uh, Esav you know, coming back from the field and he's exhausted and he's choking and dying. But I think a peep shot, um, and you could argue that the other version's shot too, but I think um, a basic read is that Esav is making an ideological, a philosophical argument, a very simple argument that... Why does this matter to me? The birthright doesn't matter to me. I'm going to die anyway. So give me the, give me the food. And Asev makes the trade, and then Vaives. So what's Vaives? Vayivaz is saying what he did afterwards. Meaning, he said, well, I didn't want that anyway. I didn't want the birthright anyway. Meaning, his actions did one thing, and then his, ideolo- his ideology had to follow. We call that, in modern psychology, we call that cognitive dissonance. We call it rationalizing. Right, that Asaf had done something. He made a blunder. And to cover for that blunder, he turned his really foolish decision into an ideological decision. A thought-out decision. This birthright really, you know, in, in, this is what was communicated through his words. It's, you know, it's not worth it if I'm going to die. And then he decided to live by that. You know, that became his mantra. Vayi as a and this is significant when we get to Haman as well, as you'll see very soon. Right? You might say that, you know, Yaakov Avinu had done the wrong thing by manipulating Aesov in this little trade. And this is something that if you go back to the earlier Real Talk Torah when I had a great conversation with my brother of Daniel on the the tactics displayed by Yaakov, we, we titled that sheer um, confronting Yaakov's lie and all the things that Yaakov did in Parshas told us. But whatever you might say about Yaakov, the Chumash signs off that as Esav as a vachora, meaning Yaakov didn't make Esav spurn the birthright. That was a decision that Esav made. And to trade, to make the trade, you know, it might have been Yaakov's idea, but Esav went through with it. Meaning, whatever accountability you might want to give to Yaakov, This does not account for Asav's own behavior. Asav is totally accountable for his behavior. And you could argue, did Yaakov do the right thing? Maybe that's a gray area. Maybe you could say he did, maybe you could say he didn't. But did Asav or Amalek have any reasonable case against Yaakov? At the end of the day, was there any reasonable case? Considering that Asav had willingly relinquished the birthright to Yaakov, and then Yaakov would go through actions after that just to confirm the deal that Esav had made so many years ago? At the end of the day, the answer is no. Esav, in this regard, by Esav, uh, by, by Esav signing on the dotted line and by the Chumash signing off of Vayivez Esav Eseb that's the Chumash's way of telling us that whatever Esav doesn't like about anything that happens is his own fault. And what that means, by the way, is that Asaph at the end of the day does not have a fair case against Yaakov. And that means that the hate for Yaakov that Asaph has in its root is really just the hatred of himself. And Yaakov is just the foil that reminds him of the hatred that he has for himself. And this, in fact, is Haman. You might say this is Hitler Yamachimo as well, rationalizing the hatred for the Jew. Right, because what happened with, with uh, Haman, one man, Mordechai, would not bow. We know that Haman had everything in the world. He had everyone bowing to him. He had riches. He had children. And he said, none of this is worth anything to me. But how did Haman come to the decision of wiping out the, all, the entire Jewish nation? And we might call this you know, just an ancient form of anti-Semitism or racism. Maybe um maybe some form of xenophobia. But the basic argument is I, you know, I don't like Mordechai, but I, you know, he spurns the idea of just targeting Mordechai. You know why? Because that looks petty. Right? To say that, you know, I am just cranky and upset and that my feelings were hurt, that that Mordechai won't bow to me. I don't want to admit that. So what am I going to do? I'm going to rationalize and turn this into an ideological, an ideological decision. That's what Vaivez is. Vayivez. That, that be Zoyon. It's emotional hatred rationalized and turned into an ideological argument. To say that, you know, this is not anti-Semitism, it's not a racism, it's not politically motivated, but it's moral and it's pragmatic. And this is exactly what Haman takes to Achashverosh. In his, in, you know, in his arguments, he says, "Listen, there's a nation that I that I don't think it's worth. You know, it's not worth it to keep them around. They're dangerous, you know. they they're, they're, they're it's it's going to be unhealthy for your kingdom." And then, Haman effectively made a great argument for the destruction of all Jews. Why? Because it's cognitive dissonance that says, you know, that you know, if if, if, I, if I'm hating on Mordechai, it's got to be for a reason. And at least, if even though I know it's not for a reason, even though I know that trading the birthright for a bowl of lentils is a terrible deal, but I have to defend it, I have to justify it, and I got to live by it. I got, I got to own my decision. And Haman decides he's going to own his decision in the greatest way possible, just destroy the entire nation now, because all you know, it's not just Mordechai; it's all of them. This, this is how you get to the, the Amalek identity. Right, we, we we we've been saying that a malik is the root of pure evil. Where does the root of pure evil come from? So we've said in the past that a mulik is the bigamatria, a suffik. He, is, he he it's just doubts. Now what well, what do these doubts do? These doubts can take something that you know is irrational, something that you know is stupid, something that you know you are wrong about. You could have the truth in front of you, but you decide to play devil's advocate, to question. The things that we take for granted because we have a fair basis for believing in it. Things that we know by tradition or things that we know by, by maybe some kind of experience. right? It, it's often good to play devil's advocate when we're trying to reach the truth and we're trying to answer real questions and we want to make sure that we've, uh, we've turned over all the stones. So we play devil's advocate. It's one thing to play devil's advocate. It's another thing to be the devil's advocate. And to be the devil's advocate means to question things to be skeptical and cynical, but not to find the truth, but specifically to cloud and obscure the truth. Right? When you know something is morally wrong, but then you say, what is it? You second guess. Maybe that which I know is morally wrong, I can rationalize and explain, is actually morally correct. I could find the justification. I could find the perfect argument. I just got to find the perfect presentation, and then I can communicate it. And once I've, once I've been able to do that, I've successfully advocated for the devil. Right? To be, to be the suffolk that is amalik, to, to embody that vayibes means to adopt rational arguments, to defend the emotional and sometimes irrational. And what we do is we turn passion and sometimes pure evil into something that can be Presented in the guise of an ideological, ethical, and moral argument—that is what rationalizing is. And this, this, this again, is, is is the essence of of what it means to to be an Amalek. And this is something that we all have the capacity to do. We all chas have the capacity to look at something that's moral but look at our own actions and try to turn it around, to try to rationalize and to to make an argument, right? When Amalek knew that attacking the Jews meant attacking Hashem's nation, Amalek, sa- you know, he just says, wait, let me just sprinkle some doubt over it. Maybe, you know, m- m- maybe someone could defeat the Bnei Israel. Maybe the things that Hashem did, the miracles, are, you know, m- maybe the- maybe it's all hype, right? Amalek you know, you go full force, right? It, it's like that it's like that that's that, that that student who, you know, he he knows he's not gonna win the fight against the administration, against the teachers when he causes trouble. But if another student put him up to it, or if the fight has been going on so long, he'll keep on pushing. Not for any rational reason, but because he's he's in the fight. And Amalek, this is the part of Asab that was still in the fight. So Amalek's like, maybe if I could just cast enough doubt, give myself the imagination that I could win when I cannot. I, could, I, can, I can justify and rationalize any decision. I can rationalize stupid decisions. I could rationalize evil decisions. But that, that's what Amalek is. And that's something, again, that, that, that we, we could all theoretically do if we're not careful. In the oaths we continue. We 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 ask Hashem that He remember, like He have this zachira. He should remember and not forget us. That even if we humans could possibly forget something, Hashem will always remember. And you know, this is this is a fair tefila when we think about our own frailty, our our own mortality, our own humanity, the decisions, the Amalek-like decisions that we could make, any, you know, any and every day. Right, Think, can you to, to imagine that the root of a Amalek Just comes from Ace of selling the birthright Something, you know, a simple business transaction It's as simple as that It's as simple as something that we buy in the store It's as simple as how we decide to, to use our time And if we're going to rationalize mistakes that we make And the more mistakes that we rationalize The more and the greater the mistakes can be And, that they can, and, and there's no limit to how evil those mistakes can become and that, 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 that's what it means to fight the battle against the Malik. Right, in a previous um, a special edition of Parsha Panorama, and the one on Parsha Shkalem, I referenced, and I shared a, a link actually in the, in the description of the audio, um, an article that I came across from Rabbi Davidov Levanon. And he was talking about, um, um, based on the pre the Rav Tzedek, the Rav Tzedek um, in Lublin, yeah, an idea that there are four parts to the Gaula. He actually connects the Dalad Parshios to the four Lishones of the Shonas of Gaula. And he says that the four expressions are really three in one. We'll explain what this means in a future Parsha panorama in this series. I'm not going to give it all away now. Though if you want to look at the article, the article will be attached to this um, audio as well on, on the uh, jewishpodcast.org website. But one of the, thing, the but the idea that there are that there are four parts of the Gula, we said that there are three that are really their own set, and then there's a fourth one. And in this set of three, we said that there are three that correspond to that pasuk in yermia Tes Chafbez, which talks about three individuals: the Ashir, the Gibor, and the Chacham. Right, you have the rich person, the mighty person, and the wise person. And the Navi says that these individuals should not glorify themselves, but they should try to only find glory in their connection to Hashem, to try to recognize and know Hashem. And we said that this Pasuk is really the source for the Mishnah Navos, Perkei Avos, Dalat Aleph, which says, Ezehu Ashir, Ezehu Gibor, Ezehu Chacham. And last week we spoke about how the Ashir corresponds to Parsha Shkalim. To understand that, you'll have to go back and listen to that one if you haven't already heard it. But while we're on that, which one corresponds? Does Parsha Zachar correspond to any of them? And Rabbi David of suggests that indeed Zachar corresponds to Ezehu Gibor. Right. The he also connects these three to Kina, Taiva, and Kavod. And so Kino, he connects with the Ashir. With the Gibor, he connects to Taiva. Because Ezehu Gibor ha-Kovesh es yitzra. The ideological battle against the Malik, again, is not just a battle against some people, a, a nation that we don't even know who they are anymore. It's an, it's an ideological battle. And it's something that we could fight even amongst ourselves as individuals. We could try to help other people around us, but everything starts from within. And for Taiva... We, again, we rationalize everything. The Milchama against the Malik is the Milchama Sayetzir in the most basic form, right? So what exactly is the nature of that battle? Everything that we've been saying until now. The Yitzhahara tries to cast Safik. He tries to cast doubt. And he tries to work with our cognitive dissonance. He tries to work with our psychological insecurities that we, that we can justify and rationalize bad decisions. Foolish decisions and sometimes evil decisions. And if we're not willing to be real giborim, to go against that, not to play into devil's advocate, not to play into you know, be, be, being skeptical and trying, to, um, and trying to ask questions on everything. Questions are fair. But to play devil's advocate and to ask questions when the answer is in front of us, which we, we often do, that's that's the battle that we're fighting. To be a gibor means look the truth in the face and don't and and don't try to rationalize around it. Before we finish for tonight, I'll just mention that once again, we look at the series as a whole, right? The panoramic view means to understand that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and if it's true, right? So the whole is greater than the sum of its partsios. So these four partsios obviously mean something. And the question is, are the four partsios about Purim, or are they about Pesach? So we'll get a fuller answer to that question as we get closer to Pesach. But there is, in fact, a link. There's, in fact, a famous Gemara that talks about the linkage between Purim and Pesach, which we have to discover and explain. But until we get there, I'll just... Reiterate something that I said in Parsha Panorama for Parsha's Beshalach. And that is that, you know, whether we're looking at Purim, we're looking at Pesach, Parsha's Beshalach actually connects the two holidays, Purim and Pesach. In fact, the Kriya for the Shvi'i Shal Pesach is in Beshalach, and the Kriya for Purim is in Beshalach. The Kriya for Pesach, the Shvi'i Shal Pesach, is Az Yashir, the Kriya Hayam, the Shir Hayam. And the Kriyasa Torah for Purim is the Mechamah against the Amalek, the, the, the original one. What's significant about that, that, the, that Parshas B'Shalach begins with the end of Pesach and ends with the beginning of Purim? And the answer is that Amalek tries to undo the progress of Pesach. Pesach was when we were able to see Hashem to have the Amunah in Hashem. And we said in Parsha Spashalach, Parsha Panorama, that Amunah can't just stay as is, but it has to eventually graduate into bitachon. What exactly is the difference between the two? So you can go back and listen to that Parsha Panorama. It was a very important discussion that we had. But in basic terms, bitachon is the level of, even when we don't see the miracles that Hashem did in Egypt anymore. But bitachon means that Hashem is still with us, even when things are hidden Even in the times of Purim Even in the natural wars And that was in fact the battle that we fought against Amalek Right? Parsh began with miracles And it ended with a natural war Yes, Moshe Rabbeinu's hands were up in the air But what's the point? What was Amalek trying to do? Amalek and Sufik and Hester Punim. All of these things were coming And trying to undermine Pesach To undo the progress of Pesach and Purim, done well, means to reinstate the bitachon in Hashem, realizing that, that Hashem is there, made, and to not have that suffix in the shadow of Hester Panim, but to know that Hashem is there, and to know that we have a battle to fight for our relationship with Hashem. So hopefully that gives us enough to think about, plenty to think about before we go into the Shabbos for Parsha Zachar. But we still have some work to do. There are two more parshas in this series. We so far have a little bit of an understanding about the linkage between Purim and Pesach and what these four parshas represent. But we're not finished. So hold on tight, hang in there, and tune in next week and in the next time. and the next Parsha Panorama for this series will be on Parshas Para. Looking forward to meeting you next time. Thanks for joining us here at The Database. If you have any questions, if you want to um, continue the conversation in any which way, reach out to me in the same place that you can to offer any kind of sponsorship, and that is at thedatabase at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to hearing any responses and to... Any kind of conversation you want to engage in on this issue or many others. But that's all the time we have left. Thanks once again for joining us here.